Hello and welcome to Going Viral. I am David Lim. In this podcast, Professor Nikolai Petrovsky takes a closer look at the mRNA vaccines and, in particular, the Pfizer-BioNTech and Moderna vaccines. It goes beyond the powerful high-efficacy headlines and raises issues we should be thinking about and looking out for. Before we start, I'd like to encourage you to register for tonight's webcast, where you can always catch a high-quality lineup of speakers and topics that HealthEd has put together for you. HealthEd webcasts are carefully created to provide high-quality video and audio so that you have the best possible learning experience. It's free, you get CPD points, and it's all delivered directly to the digital device of your choice, wherever you choose to be. Register now at healthed.com.au. You can listen to these podcasts on the HealthEd website, or you can download the HealthEd app and access many other learning resources as well. Professor Petrovsky, please tell us about yourself. Thank you. So I'm a clinician by training. Uh, I'm uh, an endocrinologist and I continue to have an active medical role. Uh, But I've always had a passion for research. And so I, after doing my endocrine fellowship, I uh, undertook a PhD uh, in immune regulation, uh, trying to understand the cause of type 1 diabetes. And that that led me into uh, ultimately the vaccine field about uh, 20 or so years ago. Um, And I was fortunate to get funding from the US government through the National Institutes of Health uh, to develop uh, technologies for use in pandemic vaccines. That This was just after the 9-11 anthrax attacks and, and the US government realised that they needed to do more uh, to develop better vaccine technologies. And I was fortunate to get funding under that program. And then for the last 20 years, I've been uh, supported uh, by the National Institutes of Health and have been developing vaccines against a whole multitude of pathogens, uh, particularly uh, various forms of pandemic influenza, uh, also SARS and MERS coronaviruses, Ebola, Japanese encephalitis, um, you know, you name it, um, you know, whether it's common or exotic, uh, we have been involved in that space. Well, Nikolai, that, with that kind of a background and experience, it's actually hugely important we have you to speak about uh, the current COVID-19 vaccines. And I will just quote a principle that I have just read, and I think it makes sense. It, it talks about striking the proper balance between looking at people's right to take something where it's determined that the benefit might exceed the risk, while also making sure that people are not taking vaccines that might actually harm them. And I think that's the space we're looking at and coming from. So question one, are the mRNA and DNA vaccines more like the vaccines that doctors know about, or are they more akin to something like gene therapy? So uh, this is a very 
I guess, interesting and important question because we have to realize that the nucleic acid technologies, uh, both DNA and RNA, actually were originally developed as gene therapies, um, but unfortunately had a number of problems. And so their you know, development in that space uh, became problematic. And so they were then recently redeveloped with the idea that they might be useful as vaccine technologies. So, so I think that we, we have to accept they are gene therapies, whether they're being used for vaccines or for treating disease. So that's, that's the first point. I think the second point is that although, you know, they, they're exciting and, um, you know, they have clearly shown some promise, um, they're a big unknown because, because they've never been used uh, in, in humans uh, at any significant scale before. And so where you have a completely new technology um, that's never been used in humans before, um, then obviously there's a lot of questions we simply can't answer. We don't know. You know, if someone asked me, well, what's you know, likely to be the outcome in five years? Could there be some unexpected problem? Of course, we don't have that sort of data to answer the question. Mm. So, so we do have to be careful, even despite their promise, um, that we don't get uh, go overboard and forget the fact that these are completely unproven technologies. And as we know, with new technologies, they can have surprises in store for us. The human body is, is very complex. And, and of course, in animal studies, um, we often only uh, do those over very short periods of time. Um, you know, typically we don't say vaccinate animals and look at them after 10, 20, 30 years. Mm -hmm. Whereas if we're vaccinating young humans, uh, you know, we have to be certain this isn't gonna have consequences even 60 years in the future. So it is, it is a very complex area. And, and as you say, we really do have to balance that risk uh, versus the benefit very carefully in a situation where there are lots of unanswered questions. Mm. Nikolai, I have to be honest, I've been trying to read around um, how the mRNA and DNA vaccines have, we've been basically told that they're, they're absolutely safe in the sense that they can not possibly ever be written back into the human genome. However, I am not able to find good publications that explains to me why I can be so confident that this can never be the case. Do you know of anything that might suggest either that it is true that it can never be written into the human genome, or does it remain a very unanswered question? So again, we, we have more data for DNA vaccines because, you know, They've been um, tested now for over 20 years, mm -hmm. uh, particularly you know, in, in a range of fields, including cancer. They, they haven't worked terribly well, which is why they haven't you know, resulted in approved product. But you know, they have been given to thousands of people over that period of time. And, 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 and there have been no reports that I'm aware of of integration or problems mm -hmm. with them. But of course, when we're talking here nucleic acids, we're not talking about DNA. That's only being pursued by a single company, Inovio. Um, and I don't think, again, people are putting a lot of store on that technology for this pandemic. So, so here we, we're talking about RNA, which, which as I say, is completely new in the context of, of vaccinations. 
Uh, so we don't have that even 15 year history of human research with these uh, technologies. Now, interestingly, RNA, although it's one step down from DNA, DNA is obviously transcribed into RNA, which is transcribed into protein. Mm -hmm. RNA in the presence of a reverse transcriptase can be turned back into DNA and inserted into the genome. And so there, in fact, is just a pre paper came out this week uh, indicating that the, with the, the SARS-2 coronavirus, that you can actually show evidence of it um, reverse transcribing its RNA back into the genome. And that's quite concerning, um, you know, both from the perspective of the infection, because this means that the virus may be inserting part of its genome uh, into our cells when it infects us, and we don't know the long-term consequences mm. of that. Mm. Uh, but also it does raise the question, well, could, could the RNA... Um, in, in the, you know, nucleic acid vaccines be reverse transcribed into our genome. Of course, it would require the presence of a reverse transcriptase, uh, which is typically, you know, produced by viral infection. So I guess mm -hmm. the question would come, well, what happens if you get a, uh, a vaccine uh, and, and soon after get infected by a virus that expresses a reverse transcriptase? Could, right. could, could potentially that RNA get inserted. It's very theoretical, but of course we're dealing with a lot of unknowns here. So it's just one, one additional question that we can't answer right now. Thank you for that. Now, Nikolai, there have been a lot of uh, articles written about the high efficacy being reported um, for the mRNA, Pfizer, BioNTech and M Moderna vaccines. And everybody seems to hold on to these figures very tightly, uh, claiming victory. But I, I would like to know, how were these uh, efficacy rates measured? Uh, were they measuring antibodies? If so, um, were they t using the gold standard PCR tests? So, so the way in which this was done um, in, in both the Pfizer and Moderna trials um, is that they... Um, the primary endpoint is based on uh, people who present with symptom, symptoms of uh -huh. COVID, uh, which are defined, and then are proved to be virus positive by PCR. Mm -hmm. uh, and so for a start, they, they aren't screening for asymptomatic carriage of the virus or whether the vaccine is preventing people mm -hmm. getting infected but not getting symptoms because those people are not getting tested right. as part of the trial design. So, so if, for instance, the vaccine just makes a symptomatic infection asymptomatic, um, then that wouldn't show up um, in, in the way that the data is being currently reported. Right. So that, that, I guess, one concern because obviously if if the vaccine doesn't prevent asymptomatic carriage, then it's not going to create herd immunity and it's not going to prevent, you know, this or, or stop this pandemic. Right. So, so that's an important question that's not being answered in these um, studies. So in, in terms of the, you know, legitimacy of the endpoint, I think it's, you know, it's reasonable because if it, if it is preventing symptoms, um, then the assumption is that it's going to prevent those symptoms turning into serious disease. And, and, mm -hmm. and although they weren't powered to address those questions, I, I, I think it's fair to say that they did 
see a trend to less severe disease occurring in the vaccinated individual. So, so that seems to hold true that mm. if you can prevent symptomatic disease, then maybe you can also prevent, you know, the most severe disease and ultimately, uh, hopefully, the deaths that are occurring. But there's no proof of that. Mm. Um, so... The biggest concern I have with those headline numbers um, is the duration over which they, that data has been collected. So the first thing is that the, the data doesn't start to be collected until two weeks after the second immunization. So essentially any cases of disease in the vaccinated group that occur before that are not counted in the statistics. Right. Um, and. Um, so, so, so then they count from two weeks after the second dose forward, but the average follow-up time for all those subjects is, is basically just under two months. Now, that's an extraordinarily short period of, of time to collect uh, data on protection um, mm -hmm. because we know that uh, you know, a lot of vaccines um, you know, can appear to be protective you know, very temporarily. Um, and I guess the classic example is the uh, Mosquitrix uh, malaria vaccine uh, produced by GSK, you know, where we know that it, it's protective in young children, but um, it loses all of that protection after six months. So, so we do have to be cautious that, you know, you, you might have 90% protection, uh, you know, at an average of one month uh, after vaccination with the, the Pfizer vaccine. Because essentially that's what the data is telling us, that an average of one month after the vaccine, your, your risk of getting an infection at that point in time has been reduced by, you know, somewhere between 90 and 95%. Mm. But, um, you know, I mean, that's, you could argue that's the best case scenario. You know, it, it's, it's plausible and possible um, that at, at three months that drops to 50% and at, at, at six months that drops to 0%. Mm -hmm. um, and, and of course, you know, if, if that trial is not continued, and, and I guess that's another concern is, you know, uh, if, if people abandon their studies claiming success after showing a, a reduced incidence of disease within that first few weeks after immunisation, then how do we know when the effect starts to wear off? And, and you know, that's a, a critical question in terms of is this going to be a useful vaccine or not? So, mm. so, so I guess, you know, I think I'm not alone in being concerned about, you know, the rigour of these studies and the importance that these studies continue for decent periods of time, arguably a minimum of a year, if not... For most vaccines in the past, you would continue the trial for at least three years with, without dismantling the trial, unblinding it, you know, vaccinating the control group, mm -hmm. uh, which is what Pfizer are proposing to, to start to do right now, that they have emergency use authorization. So, so it's a very complex issue, but it's, it's, it's so important if we have a vaccine that we know it's going to give long-term protection, because if it only has give short-term protection, then it you could argue it's valueless. Mm, mm. That's, all, that's all the data we have right now. Nicolai, I guess in, in a small way, we've been primed saying that we will always need boosters. But if you don't do those slightly longer studies, we wouldn't even know really when the boosters should be given. 
Well, that's right. So, um, you know, there's two issues here. You know, one is, yes, for some vaccines, we, we give boosters, but, but certainly not all, all vaccines. And in, in many vaccines, the booster, you know, can be after 10 years. I think it's only mm. really in flu we do it yearly. But that's not really a booster. That's because the virus has changed and mm. we have to change the vaccine to keep up with the virus. So it's a new vaccine for a new virus every, every year. Um, so it's not really a booster as such. Um, but, but I think the issue here, particularly with the mRNA, is that we know the side effect profile goes up dramatically after the second immunization. And that's unusual. So, so to put it in context for most vaccines, we typically see the side effects go down with the second uh, immunization. And, and part of that is maybe that people are more relaxed the second time round because they've had, you know, uh, uh, you know, no side effects and, and, and been happy with the first shot, but they were a bit apprehensive. So, um, and then the next shot, they're much calmer. And so they get less, you know, or they feel less side effects, if I can put it that way. The thing about the mRNA that's of major concern to me is that the side effects are over double after the second immunization they, they saw after the first. Mm -hmm. Now, that's a serious concern because it, it does mean if you did need to give a further third booster at some point, you know, uh, are the side effects going to be off scale? Mm. Because mm. you're building side effects and that is not the normal scenario we see with vaccines. But but that does raise serious concerns about, you know, whether you could even give a booster of the same vaccine if the immunity was waning, because we don't really understand already, you know, right now why the side effects are increasing mm. uh, after the booster dose to such a large degree. That's a very important point to alert us to, Nikolai. Um, I need to ask another question with these vaccines, and it's to do with the polyethylene glycol story. So many questions here. A, why do we need it in these vaccines? And I have read that really we have underestimated the role of PEG in causing allergies. So as, doc, as GPs, I, I don't even understand why, first of all, it's there. What sorts of allergies do they really cause? Are they serious? And what can we do about it? So we pegylate proteins um, to increase their half-life in the body. So it, the, the pegylation essentially makes them less visible uh, to the body and, and so they're less likely to be scavenged and broken down. Mm -hmm. You also put it on particles. In this case, uh, it was done um, on the RNA particles when they were being used as gene therapy because they actually didn't want the immune system uh, ironically, to see the mRNA um, so that it would last longer in the body to, to be able to, um, you know, get inside more cells and, and, and express um, whatever gene it was that the gene therapy was attempting to do. Mm -hmm. So it's been carried forward and it's a little bit paradoxical because, of course, a vaccine wants to be recognised. Um, uh, it's not trying to, to move around the body by stealth. Um, so I think it really is largely a carryover from the fact that these really were designed as gene therapies and haven't, the effort hasn't gone into 
redesigning them to make them optimal as vaccines. Mm -hmm. and, and to be honest, I think, you know, without a better explanation, that's why the pegulation is still in there. Um, so there's a big question, does it really need to be there? Um, and is it a benefit or is it actually uh, just increasing the, the risk and the side effects? So that's the first point. It really mm -hmm. reflects the fact that these are gene therapies that are being repurposed uh, quickly as vaccines. So, so the second question is, is around, you know, the uh, signals that have, have been seen uh, with the Pfizer vaccine uh, in respect of allergic reactions. Uh, and certainly reading the um, FDA submission uh, on the Pfizer vaccine, um, they do highlight this and the fact that there were a large number of allergic uh, manifestations that were in excess in the vaccinated group versus the control group. Um, so it wasn't just the media reports of a couple of cases of uh, anaphylaxis, I think in the UK, uh, with mm -hmm. rollout of the vaccine, but there's clearly a very strong signal in the, the trial itself um, that it's increasing allergic problems. And the interesting thing there is, as I understand it, uh, patients with allergy were actually excluded from the trial. So this large excess um, signal of allergic manifestations is occurring in a non-allergic population. Wow. Um, and so that, that is a major concern because it, it then means, well, what happens if it's causing allergy in people who are not allergic? Mm. What's, you know, obviously, it's probably going to cause much more serious allergy in people who are allergic. And maybe that was what we saw in the United Kingdom with those early cases. Um, so I think it is a very serious issue. I don't think we understand the basis uh, for the, you know, this increased uh, allergic uh, tendency. Mm -hmm. uh, I, I don't think we can certainly say it's the, the pegylation um, by any means, because I haven't actually seen any mechanistic studies into the cause of that. You know, is it, is it other parts of the lipid uh, nanoparticles that they're putting the RNA in? Is it actually the RNA itself? Um, you know, so there's a lot of factors there. Um, all, all we can say is that clearly there were increased allergic uh, manifestations in the people who received the vaccine. But I don't think we can say in any way what the actual mechanism is other than to say that the vaccine is clearly doing it. But how it's doing it, we don't know. Is it fair then to say, Nicola, that at this stage, uh, rather than be very excited with all the reports and data that has come out, uh, further questions and concerns have actually been raised in your own mind? Look, yes. I mean, I was as excited as anyone to see the original headline results. I mean, you know, we up till then we'd faced the problem that, that some leading experts, including, you know, Professor Fraser in Australia, had, had, had gone on the public record saying they didn't believe that a coronavirus vaccine was even possible. And obviously, you know, the, the Pfizer, you know, headline data showed that it is possible, you know, with, with very high levels of protection, admittedly, you know, over a short sp space of time. But it was a major advance mm. uh, from that point that it really dismissed this idea that had been propagated to that point that we were wasting our time to even try to develop a coronavirus vaccine. So it was an important breakthrough. Mm. Um, 
But of course, as, as you then, you know, digest the excitement of, yes, we've now proved it's possible, um, and start digging into, you know, the, the other side of the equation, which, which is, so, you know, should we all be having this? You know, should we be rolling it out, putting it in the water? Mm-hmm. Um, you know, is it the best thing since sliced bread? As a clinician myself, you have to start, you know, assessing any risks and nothing comes without risk. So, mm-hmm. so really you, you need the, the detailed data to be able to assess very accurately the risk because you can, you can easily measure the benefit, you know, because we've already seen that. It's a, it's a single headline number. Mm-hmm. The problem with risk is the risk takes many, many different forms, as we've discussed. Mm. You know, it could be risk of allergy, it could be risk of RNA integration, uh, it could be, you know, uh, as I say, you know, it, it, it's sort of like uh, almost incalculable. So it's, it, it's and it, it doesn't take one form. Um, and so that requires uh, very detailed data on everything that's happened to every subject in the study. Um, mm. And unfortunately, often that data is not made available to us to even be able to fully analyze the risk. Mm. So that's mm. the first concern. Um, but even with the limited data that we have available, as I say, um, you know, already, you know, when you dig into that data, you do see that there are things happening um, that, you know, are, are of some concern. For instance, um, you know, there were four cases of Bell's palsy in the vaccinated group, there was zero in the control group in a very large study. Now that might sound like a small number, but four to zero is a worry. I mean, it's a neurological problem. Um, Could it be a marker of something more serious? You know, Mm. is is the vaccine causing an immune response against neurons that, you know, in other people could lead to other neurological manifestations. So although Bell's palsy itself, um, I mean, I've had it myself and it wasn't pleasant um, and, and, and you never get 100% recovery, but, mm. but, you know, it's not life-threatening. But the question is, could it be a signal of other things? And, and again, we just don't have, you know, any data or knowledge. It, it's still too limited, the, the duration of the exposure to these new technologies to, to understand what it does or doesn't mean. So we're not trying to unduly concern people, but you know, it's problematic to be using a new technology in this context, and it's never been done before. Obviously, no vaccine of a new technology has has, has been rolled out just months after its development without, you know, large-scale human testing. So, so yeah, I don't know how to resolve that issue. So Mm. I, I am concerned, but I don't want to to equally dismiss what could be a life-saving vaccine. Mm. But, but I am worried about the paucity of data still. Now, here's a difficult question before we move from the overseas to the local. Clearly, a small group of very learned experts um, are making the call as to which vaccines should be rolled out and given to millions, if not hundreds of millions of people, say, in the USA uh, by the FDA. Can, can we be 100% certain that these sorts of calls are objective, scientific, evidence-based, or is there always a possibility of some conflict of interest slipping in? 
I think that, you know, we, we, we need to trust our, our regular regulators. I mean, they, they you know, um, have res enormous responsibility to, to make these decisions and they're not easy decisions. They need to be left alone to make those decisions. And I think the, the bigger concern is not conflict, it's, it's you know, the political process mm -hmm. interfering in the regulatory process. And we, we've right. seen this played out in the United States where obviously, you know, the president was, was really trying to, to force the FDA to make decisions that they weren't comfortable to make. I think we need to push back very strongly against any political interference in the regulatory process. Mm -hmm. I, I trust the regulators. I mean, you know, they, they are very, very committed individuals who are trying to do the right thing in difficult circumstances. Yep. What we have to avoid is, is as I say, um, them being put under, you know, excess pressure right. um, to, to make decisions that they're not comfortable with. Um, and, and that is very, very, you know, important, I think, is to let the regulators do their job. And we also have to understand regulators in different countries are looking at um, different risk-benefit analyses. Mm -hmm. so, so if, you know, 2,000 people a day are dying in the United States, as we're seeing right now, then, you know, the risk-benefit um, uh, assessment is completely different to Australia, where where you know, we've had no one dying for, for many months and, and potentially that can continue into the future mm -hmm. using current you know, policies. Mm -hmm. And so you know, to approve the same vaccine in Australia, uh, the emphasis would be very, very much uh, against any uh, acceptance of risk because the benefit is, is small in, mm. in the scheme of things. That, that assessment will be very different in the US where the benefit is very obvious. You know, potentially you could be stopping 2,000 deaths a day with the vaccine. And so you're going to accept a large element of risk alongside that. And I think that's, that's why we've seen this emergency use authorization uh, of the Pfizer vaccine in the United States is because of the context in which that decision is being taken. In no, in no way should we interpret that as the FDA saying this is a, a completely safe vaccine uh, that we're confident won't cause problems in the future. That, that is not what they're saying. Mm -hmm. uh, they're saying, you know, given the, the risk benefit right now, um, you know, we, we don't want to stand in the way of this potential, uh, you mm -hmm. know, uh, prevention of, of what is a very serious pandemic. That's actually a beautiful discussion on risks and how to understand it, and especially in the context of different countries. Uh, that was really important. Thanks, Nikolai. I just thank you so much for all that wonderful bits of information. Um, and I, as I said, hope I will be speaking to you soon. Absolutely. It's a pleasure. Just a quick reminder as we wrap up to encourage you to register for tonight's webcast, where you can always catch a high-quality lineup of speakers and topics that HealthEd has put together for you. HealthEd webcasts are carefully created to provide high-quality video and audio so that you have the best possible learning experience. It's free. You get CPD points and it's all delivered directly to the digital device of your choice, wherever you choose to be.
Register now at healthed.com.au. You can claim RACGP CPD points for listening to this podcast using the self-claim option. Log into your account on the RACGP website, go to the CPD section and click on self-claim.